0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our third week now in this study on the great chapter concerning the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Tonight we're in verses 12 through 23. Does it really matter in Christianity whether resurrection is a true thing. Does it matter whether the Old Testament believer Job had it right and his hopes were in something real when in Job chapter 19 verse 25 he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. In my flesh, I shall see God. Really? And does that even really matter in Christianity? I mean, why not just say, you know, my body, weak as it was, it dies and goes to get eaten by worms. But my soul, my soul gets to go be in the presence of God forever. Isn't that enough? Isn't that all that really matters? Well, Paul has to answer that question And in doing us, he encourages us to understand all the good that we have coming to us because of Jesus. So let me invite you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 23. Hear now the word of our God. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But in this life only we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ. The first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of our inheritance and what is the immeasurably great power that you have for us who believe, that power that was exercised in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him above all things for your people. We pray that. Teach us. Help us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. In his name we ask. Amen. Paul has been talking about the resurrection of Jesus, his dead body reunited alive with his soul, his corpse stood up upon the earth again after being entombed. And we saw last week in verses 3 through 11 that you can believe that because the scriptures said it would happen and the eyewitnesses said it did happen. But some in Corinth said there is no such thing as the resurrection of the physical body from the dead. Now, why did they say that? Uh, We're not certain why. Some may have held to a Greek philosophy that said, well, the body is unimportant and it's really the soul that matters. And no pun intended. Uh, The body is just a shell for the soul. What really matters is your soul, that it be liberated from the constraints of the body. And others said, well, no, 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 really the problem is that matter is evil. The physical stuff is evil. The the body is evil and the soul is not only what's important, but it's the soul that's good and salvation is shucking off that evil body and being free of it forever. And some may have said this, well, uh, the resurrection the Bible talks about is spiritual, not physical. I mean, what matters is that the soul be brought to life. Not that the body also be brought to life. That's what really matters. And so for any and all and maybe other reasons, but we're not certain it could have been a combination. But for whatever reason, they, they said it. They taught it. Some among them said there is no physical resurrection. Now, how does Paul respond to that? Paul responds, I think, in three ways, at least to begin his argument in the text we have before us. And let me walk you through the outline, and then, and then we'll go point by point. In the first place, his answer is in verses 12 and 13. He says, look, if you deny the resurrection, then you cut the heart out of the gospel. I mean, Christ rose. That's what we preach. Then, then his second answer in verses 14 through 19 is, you know, if you deny the resurrection, uh, what you're left with in Christianity is pointless, truthless, fruitless and hopeless that's verses 14 through 19 and then in verse 20 he comes on around and he he reaffirms well you can deny the resurrection but it really happened and it's really coming for us and this is how it benefits you because Christ rose the promises that we also will rise that's his threefold answer now let me walk you through each of those in the first place go back to verses 12 and 13 and see that Paul says look The death and resurrection of Jesus is at the very heart of the good news. And if you take out either of them, you cut the heart out of the gospel. How does he say that? Well, look at his language. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see what he's saying? So Paul Paul is saying this is the heart of the good news. It's, and we should add, it's the best news you have ever heard or I could ever share with you. Um, the illustration I've used before is this. Somebody will say, you know, Ted, I've got great news. Somebody, please say this to me. I've got great news for you today. I'd like you to become a billionaire. And I say, well, thank you. That's great. I'd, I'd love to become a billionaire too. Then, then you tell me your plan. Don't give me this plan. You say, here's what you do get a second job work really, really hard, save up everything you make for a million years and you'll become a billionaire. Well, that's not good news to me. That sounds like an awful lot of difficult and impossible work. I'm not going to live a million years. But if you come to me and say, and please do this and it be true, I've discovered somebody who loves you and they were rich and they died. And they left you everything they have, a billion dollars. You're a billionaire. Just take what they're giving you. Well, that would be good news. That would be great news. And that's the gospel in a sense, friends. The gospel is not something we must do. The gospel tells us what Jesus has already done for us. He died for our sins, verses 3 and 4. He was buried And he was raised in accordance with the scriptures and all the good things of God. Every good and everlasting gift you could ever have from God is bound up in him and received from him, freely passed on to all who believe in him, all who receive him, trust in him. This is good news, friends, because he came back from the dead. So the gospel is not up for grabs in the Bible, and it's not for you and I to decide what it is. Now, Paul then has to challenge the Corinthians, because they're undermining the gospel. They're saying there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is saying, if the resurrection is not a real thing, then even Christ hasn't been raised. If it's impossible, then it never happened to Jesus. Don't say that, because Jesus raised. That's his argument. The scriptures said it would happen, and the witnesses said it did happen, and I, Paul, saw Jesus myself in a body. So you can't say resurrection doesn't happen because it did happen to Jesus. And by way of application, I couldn't help but um, just throw this one at you. In Christianity, history trumps philosophy. And I want all the students to keep that in mind when you take the Intro to Philosophy class that Dr. Bruce is teaching. What happened in the resurrection trumps any philosophical speculation about the resurrection. So my little Bachelor of Arts, undergrad in history trumps his doctorate in philosophy. Paul says if if it's not an event that occurred, it has no meaning. And you've completely undermined the meaning if you deny the event. Jesus rose bodily and therefore resurrection is not only a possibility but it is a reality that's his first point then he presses harder at them he actually takes up the logic of their position in verses 14 through 19 and says well okay you want to deny the resurrection have you considered the implications of that if you say there is no resurrection he says You've got nothing left in Christianity. I mean, look at the language of this, where he presses them in verses 14 through 19, where he raises four issues with them, beginning at, at, um, at, the, uh, at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching in his vein is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's the first issue he presses. If Christ has not been raised, then preaching and faith are pointless and worthless Meaningless, and believing in Jesus is pointless. Look, if if the the bones of Jesus could be dug out of the sand in Jerusalem and shown to the world to be the true bones of the the Lord Jesus, who who the Bible proclaims, then then we're done. Two thousand years of preaching Jesus and two thousand years of Christians believing in Jesus is worthless. Preaching just ends up being talking into the wind, and believing just ends up being trusting in a fairy tale. And what a stupid, silly, waste of time that would be, and is, if there is no resurrection. That's his first point. It's it's simply vain. It's futile. It's pointless. It's worthless. The second is this, in verse 15: If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and our faith are truthless. Look at verse 15 where he says, we are, found, we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see what he's saying? You know, you can't say, well, the apostles... Uh John was just a great lover of people, and, and Peter, I mean, he's he's kind of a neat character. He was always kind of mouthing off a little ahead of time and getting things wrong, but you've got to love his boldness, and, and the Apostle Paul, some like him, because you know he was kind of an intellectual giant in some way. These are really good guys. And and Mary and, and the women who saw Jesus raised or said they did, well, I mean, aren't they dear, sweet, wonderful people? And Paul says, no. No, they aren't just misguided or overzealous people. Paul says they are outright deceptive liars. They said they saw Jesus risen. (laughs) But they're charlatans. They're phonies and frauds giving false testimony about God raising Jesus, whom God did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul says there's no truth in this if he hasn't been raised. And, and what I want to press is, is that everything in Christianity then falls apart without the resurrection because it's the whole Bible that's promised the resurrection. I mean, the Old Testament predicted it would happen. The four gospel account, accounts about the life of Jesus tell you it happened. The letters of Paul and Peter and James explain why it happened and why it's good. And the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible it strengthens our hope in resurrection. It's all gone if it isn't true. Abraham and Joseph and Jacob and David looked forward to the resurrection. Isaiah proclaimed, Job looked forward to in his flesh seeing God. Peter and Paul and John and Thomas, all these guys said they saw him. And if they are all saying the resurrection is true and it happened to Jesus and it isn't true and it didn't happen to Jesus... Then they are all liars, including Jesus, who said he would be three days in the belly, of the belly of the earth and then he would rise. They're all liars. And you ought to throw out everything they say because they lied about the most important thing. So listen Christianity depends on it being historically true. And we believe it because it is true. And if it isn't true, we ought to shred the Bible burn it and throw it on the ash heap of history. So don't say, oh, how sweet. It's wonderful how religious you Christians are, how spiritual you are. And I've seen even some of you kind of be kind to people and give your money to stuff. And isn't that really great? And Paul says, no, we're outright in your face, bald face deceivers. Hmm. And so Christianity, preaching and faith are pointless and truthless, but he presses a third thing. They are, in fact, fruitless. They bear nothing good. They don't deliver what they promise. And he says that again here in the text when he says, not only verse 15 are we found to be misrepresenting God, but in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still, he says, In your sins, what Jesus promised, he doesn't come through on. That's what he's saying. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't bring forgiveness of sins if Jesus hasn't risen. It doesn't bring redemption from sin. It doesn't bring release from the bondage of sin. It doesn't bring the hope of one day being out of the very presence of the evil of sin. It doesn't do any of those things. You are still in sin, Paul says. Think again of the first event of the gospel. Christ died, not just died, died for our sins. We looked at that statement in verses three and four. His death was a real sacrifice for our sins. He went to the cross for us. He died the death that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus took all the consequences that sin deserves on behalf of any and all who believe in him. In him we are forgiven. And so uh, if our justification means anything at all, it means we have the right to stand bodily in the very presence of God as Adam stood in his body in the presence of God in the garden if we're truly no longer in our sins because of him. Now, how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was successful in that? How do you know that his death actually rescues you from your sin? Because he rose. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Christ was delivered for our sins and was raised for our justification. In other words if God had no regard for his sacrifice then God would not have raised him from the dead but God did raise him from the dead because God accepted the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf and he was satisfied with the work of Jesus on our behalf and death could not hold Jesus because he conquered sin and death and he satisfied the curse due to us for sin. He took it away and the father looked at his son and said, with you I am well pleased. I'm satisfied with your work. It is finished. And so he rose in vindication that he never died for his own sins for he had none. But he rose in vindication that he had satisfied justice for our sins and God is pleased with him and if he did not rise then he's still in the grave and the only thing you can say about him is he was a sinner just like us and he paid for sin just like you and I deserve to but he didn't, he rose and the empty tomb says God is satisfied with his son and the work of his son on behalf of his people in him we are forgiven there is fruit it's not fruitless And the last point he makes is this. If Christ isn't risen, uh, then preaching and faith are not only pointless and truthless and fruitless, but preaching and faith are hopeless. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, he says. I mean, if there's no resurrection, then the people who put their hope in Jesus dying and rising for them, Well, then they went and appeared before God and they stand on their own and not in Jesus. They don't have hope in him, but they gave up all their hopes and everything else. They've worshiped the wrong God. They've done the wrong things to be right with whatever God there is, but they certainly didn't get free. And so he says they perished. And in that case, they and we ought to be pitied more than anybody. I mean, we ought to be considered like a man who was out of his mind with thirst, wandering in the desert, chasing a mirage, never arriving, never finding water, pursuing the wrong thing, hoping where there is no hope, and dying parched. When we ought to have been digging a well, when we ought to have been going to some other pond that was real. Instead of trusting Jesus for forgiveness. So you see Paul's argument or the gist of it. If the dead don't rise, then Christ hasn't risen. Then preaching is useless. Faith is vain. Apostles are liars. Sin is unforgiven. And dead believers are damned. And that's all the hope that we can have too. And that means Christians are the world's most pitiful people. And then Paul squashes then the idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your beliefs. I mean, do you see that? I mean, let's hope the engineer who designs the next aircraft you travel on didn't really think that what matters isn't reality, but just his sincere opinion about reality. I mean, what matters is, uh, in air travel is not the opinion of the engineer, however sincerely or strongly held. What matters are the facts concerning properly functioning airplanes and whether the engineer understood that, right? So for us, what matters is not the sincerity of our faith, however misguided it is, but is our faith in the one who can save us. And the one who died and rose can and so now on to Paul's third point. First was that there, uh, that there is resurrection because Jesus rose. His second point is that if Jesus didn't rise, then everything in Christianity is pointless and truthless and fruitless and hopeless. And his third point is This Christ, in fact, he affirms, verse 20, has been raised. And you who believe in him, You are united to him by faith. You also will rise. Look at the language here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, the facts are stubborn things. And he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what's he talking about there? First fruits is an agricultural term. It means the early part of the harvest. In other words, it's, it's, the, it's the first to ripen uh, and be plucked. It, it ripens before the larger bulk of the harvest. And the presence of the first fruits confirms, confirms the eventual presence of the rest of the harvest. You, you've got a plant that's functioning and it's producing fruit. <laughs> And the first fruits gives you an inkling of and a promise of the coming fuller harvest. This is what Jesus is. His resurrection is the pledge and guarantee, Paul says, of the resurrection of us, all who believe in him. To use a different analogy, I'm not sure how many of us are farmers or gardeners. (laughs) Not that you're sailors either, but I thought this was a wonderful analogy I read elsewhere. So I'm throwing it in. In Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, I think he gets at the same basic idea. In Acts chapter 5, the, Peter says this when he was told he you know, got to quit preaching. And he says, well, look, we're going to keep preaching. We've got to obey God. And then he goes on to tell them, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted him as leader and savior. And the word leader there in in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, 30, 31, it's translated various ways. As leader, as prince, as front runner, as pioneer as hero. It's a word used for a guy on a ship who was the strongest swimmer they had. And when the ship would get near shore and the waves were pounding and and threatened the crew who were getting off and they didn't know whether they could keep the ship close to shore and how they would get the people off safely, what they did is they took the the best swimmer they had and they put a rope around him and they, they had him dive into the water and swim his way into shore and then what he did is he got out and he wrapped that rope around a rock or a tree and everybody else got off the ship coming behind him by coming along on the safety of that rope he was the leader, the front runner the pioneer the the hero who took the rope and he anchored it and that is what Jesus is he swam through the waters of death and death couldn't hold him and death couldn't drown him and he got to the shore and he anchored the rope and the rest of us come along behind him if he's doomed we're doomed if jesus didn't rise then sin and wrath killed him and kept him down and then sin and wrath will kill us too but jesus made it safely through and he brings us safely through because he's the pioneer the forerunner the hero He's the first fruits that guarantees a coming host of those who will rise. And it is guaranteed. How guaranteed? How certain? How do we get it? Well, look at the last thing as Paul says in verses 21 and 2. Our resurrection is certain if we are united to him. If we are in him. In union with him. Look at the language. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also The resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive look what he's doing he's saying the fates of Adam and Christ represent the fates of their people Adam died Christ died but Christ rose from the dead and the whole human race must die in Adam but those who are in Christ he says will rise again adam and christ don't merely represent our fates though our destiny they are responsible for them by his disobedience adam brought death but by his obedience christ brings life this is paul's point in romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 we read verses 15 through 17 as our assurance of pardon in christ but at verses 18 and 19 paul says this therefore as one trespass. Speaking of Adam's sin. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience. One man's. That's Adam. The many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience. The many will be made righteous paul is saying adam and christ represent us before god adam by nature is the head and representative of all mankind in the fall and christ by grace through faith represents in the new covenant all who believe and trust in him and so the bible here is saying as it reflects upon adam and christ is is telling you not You've got to work really harder than Adam did if you want to be saved. You need to do a better job than Adam did. You need to follow not the example of Adam, but you need to follow the example of Christ. That is not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is saying that it's not just that we follow the example of Adam, though we do, but that we are all in Adam. And what we need is to be out of Adam and in Adam. Christ united to him under the umbrella of his salvation, under the umbrella of his saving work through union with Christ by faith. And we can have that, friends, because he is not dead. He is risen. And so just as Noah in the Old Testament and his family were safe from the judgment of the flood and then they entered a restored and renewed earth, Only after they were in the ark. Only by being in the ark. So humanity is safe from the day of judgment. And we enter the the life of the world to come with a resurrected body. By being in Christ. Sheltered in him. And so the offer of the good news is for us all. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, that you did not spare him, but you gave him for us. Oh, I pray that you would give us a greater hope and love and trust in him and help us to know all that you have in store for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What's the is doing to me? Mm-hmm.